The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Saturday, April 8th, 2023. So, Mr. Rios, proceed with caution. Hey everybody, this is your host, Peter, with the 40th Digest of this second volume, covering Monday, April 3rd through Friday, April 7th, 2023. Starting off this week's Digest with a little news item, comic book related, that I only came across at the end of March, but maybe this is something you have heard about uh, over the past couple months or the last year or so. By the way, we are in suburban lawn mowing season, so if you hear a dull hum in the background, it's because... Uh, Once again, we're at that point where people just cannot let their lawns grow more than, you know, half a centimeter. Uh, You know, God forbid the bees should have some place to be. So anyway. um, All right. So this news item is about a comic book and memorabilia collector based out of Detroit who was a father, passed away in, you know, the past year or so. His name was Dale. And for 50 years, he kept this collection a secret from his family. And uh, from the article and from interviews, there are about a million different pieces to this uh, collection, whether it's comics, baseball cards, toys, etc., etc. So upon his death, the ex-wife and the son finally examined what it was that he had in this collection, and what they found was one of the largest and most valuable collectible collections in the country. And uh, this story is going to be featured in an upcoming documentary called Selling Superman. You can find this information at sellingsuperman.com. And uh, again, you might have heard of this already. Uh, I saw it because someone tweeted out uh, a news report um, just at the end of March. And, and I was like, whoa. And I think I heard about this before, but um, it finally sort of registered this time. So from their website, uh, this is the about section. There is a 40-year hidden family secret that only a few people knew about. Darren's father, Dale, had Asperger's, and it led him to collect comic books in a genius yet obsessive way that overtook the home, destroyed the family, and caused everyone great mental trauma. Now, after his father's passing, Darren is left with a holy grail collection of, o- of over 300,000 comic books, including the prized possession of Superman number 1, a 7.0 copy valued at over $3.5 million, making it one of the most valuable comic books of all time. Darren the Son is faced with his final adventure of selling Superman, of picking up the pieces of his childhood, rewriting a family legacy, and discovering the heroic power, the heroic power of choosing what we give meaning to. So in the news video that I watched, which uh, it's also in the trailer for this documentary, it obviously doesn't stop at Superman number one. There are first issues of, you know, the first Iron Man, multiple copies of key issues uh, of a Silver Surfer key issue, and it just goes on and on and on and on. So this collection is so um, prized and so... 
amazing that CGC Comics, that grades uh, comics, they announced their first ever custom provenance label. And they will grade all the books from this collection and they will have a special label up top that Darren the Sun designed himself. And then in all of these videos, you see pictures of him uh, going to different conventions, meeting comic book collectors, meeting, you know, my, uh, uh, Chuck Rosansky at Mile High Comics, um, showing off his collection. I mean, I certainly think he could make such a, a mark just by creating a tour of this collection, right? There is a lot that is in those CGC slabs. Um, he has like three shipping containers worth of, of stuff, original Star Wars toys. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. Um, I think my, the, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it is because there's been a conversation around this story that I find intriguing. Um, because this collection was more or less secret and took over the home and destroyed this family, um, there's this side, uh, some people are saying how, you know, this, uh, certainly the, the ex-wife, the, the son are saying that it was very hard to grow up in this atmosphere. The collection was not to be talked about. It was, you know, obviously probably not meant to be touched, et cetera, et cetera. It destroyed their family. It destroyed their marriage, uh, the home, et cetera. But there's this really large other side of the story where people are almost condemning the the ex-wife, the son, saying that, um, you know, that they bullied him, that uh, that he was a collector, not a hoarder, and how dare they treat him like this now after he's gone. And I don't know. I, If I just go by what they're saying, and obviously it's their word against this deceased man, you know, I get that. But listen to some of the things that they actually said. Not that a report said, not that a reporter said. These are words from their very mouths in some of these videos. For instance, the ex-wife Celeste, these are, are her words, uh, scattered phrases throughout these videos. At the beginning, he didn't seem to be hoarding anything. The collection became insidious in the house. Everybody knew we weren't supposed to talk about it. We don't tell anyone about this. He was sad to live with. He made life livable but not worth living. I had to escape. She talks about divorcing. She talks about... When she was divorcing, she didn't want anything to do with the collection. Uh, and then when she talks about what her son is doing now, she said, a cloud has been lifted opposite of what his dad did. Then we go to the son, Darren, and he said things like, my mother and father fought about the collection. Certain rooms were off limits. Uh, if I could talk to my dad today, I would say, Dad, you did it. All that pain and struggle and investment, you did something really great. I wish you were here to witness it with us. My father had Asperger's, but not knowing it caused a lot of friction. There was an ultimate fixation and hoarding. He needed more space and more space and more space. He was constantly neurotic about the security of the collection. So again, if I if I listen to those words, when I see these reactions, like a lot of people take offense to the word hoarding. And some people say, you know, 
well, it's not like he was messy and it's not like um, it was causing like physical health problems and things like that. Um, You know, it doesn't, to be a hoarder, you don't have to think garbage, right? I don't know if anybody has seen the show Hoarders, but one of my ex-roommates and I, we used to watch it all the time. And yes, there are truly horrific cases and sad cases, and you don't know how people can live like that, but obviously it's, it's, it's a mental thing. Like, I get that. But they also showed, and they were smart to show, uh, middle-class people, wealthy people, uh, people who were not uh, messy, and but what they were, they were people who spent money. They were people who had this mental idea that if they bought this thing, they could use it as a gift for a relative, but they would never give the gift away, right? Or that they would go to flea markets and buy things and their whole garage was full of stuff. People who collected things or people who just, as I said, spent money and just stored these things away. Doesn't that sound like comic book collecting? (laughs) You know, we are, in a sense, some of us hoarders. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of class you're in. It doesn't matter if it's messy versus clean. You know, there is an element of, of, of that sort of mental state of collecting and collecting again and keeping things in order and shape and, and nobody can touch these things. And, you know, um, I'm sure if I talked to some of my ex-girlfriends, it would be interesting to hear what they had to say about my collection, right? They all lived with the collection because I would carry it around wherever I would, wherever I would go. And some of them certainly knew uh, that I was buying comics, you know, while I was dating them and storing them away and I would read them and sometimes they would read them, sometimes not. But I'm sure they also understood, you know, don't mess with it, right? Like if people came over, the few things that I would have out maybe in a bookcase, I'm sure if someone were to treat it poorly, they would, you know, make sure that they would tell them not to, um, Usually the collection was always either in like a closet or a separate room. Um, But there again, it was sort of they understood that that was my thing. And um, imagine that on a much, much bigger scale where it's a secret. You're not allowed to look at them. it's, It's stored away in a home. I don't know what their family life was life like. I just have to go with what they're saying and, you know, this is, um, I don't know. I, I just, I thought that reaction from people that they're calling this ex-wife and this son horrible people and that they're living off of his money, et cetera, et cetera. I do think that um, uh, as of this recording, I think they sold like Batman number one for like a million dollars. Um, but, uh, you know, he's making a story about it and he is trying to show the collection in a better light than maybe what he grew up in with and there are some accounts from some of his friends in the, in the documentary trailer of you know like they also knew that this was something you're not supposed to touch i mean you know to put it out there there are many times that i've said to my mother that she's a hoarder because she has things in her home that i don't understand why she has them like she has multiple plastic uh, soda cups 
from Burger King and Wendy's that are, you know, maybe they have, I don't know, a basketball player on it or they have the Eagles logo on it. Like, why do you need three of those? Why do you need that? Why do you need an old cereal box that has Spider-Man on it, you know, that, that the cereal is probably dust by now? Why do you need old toys in the garage in plastic bags because you think some future grandkid is going to play with that, you know? Um, she does collect porcelain dolls, like that's her thing, and that's great. Like that that's understandable, right? It doesn't overtake the home. She likes them great but some of the other things yeah it's a problem it is a problem and I know you probably have people in your lives that are that are like this you know um I had an aunt that you know her constant buying on those shopping networks that uh she would then go to flea markets and sell them and and but it was overtaking the home at one point you know like this is what we I think this is what people don't seem to understand the word hoarder does not mean garbage it means what it means you know so um i i don't know i just thought it was a really interesting conversation maybe there's part of the story i don't know but maybe you do you know i i just think it's fascinating and it's so rare to see a story like this because we are in the information age and to have a secret come out like this in the past year or so you know, who else out there has like a collection like this that has these key issues, the size of it, the scope of it, and is just hiding away. You know, we hear these stories of like Action Comics number one in a wall somewhere or an addict and they sell for, you know, thousands or a million dollars or whatever. But an entire collection like this, uh, you know, multiple copies of these, uh, some of these issues. So Go check it out. If you have more info, let me know. Um, it has the collecting world all abuzz over the last year or so. And uh, I just uh, wanted to uh, get some thoughts out of my head about this story here at the start of a new digest. Hear that? Do you hear that? Do you hear that lawnmower? Ugh. TV Tuesday, Walking Dead Season 11, Part 5. This will be my final segment on this final series or final uh, season of the series. I'm going to talk about the last eight episodes, episode 17 through 24. And this will bring my great watch or rewatch and watch of Walking Dead to an end. That music you heard is the theme song to Walking Dead, obviously, but that particular version was played on the final episode, and it has much more orchestrations to it, you know, just just some new riffs in the middle of it that I was like, oh, listen to this, listen to how epic this is now becoming, you know. It really added a lot to, uh, to you know, drum up some excitement for that that final episode. So where did we leave off prior to these final episodes? Uh, Daryl, Maggie, Aaron, Gabriel, uh, they are still on the run from Lance and his stormtroopers. Uh, 
because Lance is trying to consolidate power. Negan has gone to the Commonwealth because they don't know him, and he's going to rally all of Rick's people, and also to get word to Governor Milton that her boy Lance is wilding out. Uh, we still have the problem of her son, Sebastian, and he has been outed as a killer uh, in exchange for um, a little peace of mind or, or, or to restore some, some peace to the community. All of Alexandria's people are let go and they, and they decide to place the blame on, of what Sebastian is doing onto Lance and they throw him into the jail. Um, but of course things go wrong and Rick's people are once again at odds with the Commonwealth, with Milton. Um, Sebastian is finally eaten, thank God. Um, we learn that some of it is uh, Lance is still able to cause problems even though he's in jail. Alexandria has been turned into a prison camp. There's a trial in the middle of this because Eugene was uh, accused of causing Sebastian's death, which is more or less true. And then, you know, they're they're trying to have a trial so that, again, we'll try to keep the peace with the larger Commonwealth community. I, just, I thought that was a very strange part to, um, to the remainder of the, of the season. Um, so, and then when we get to the last two episodes of the season, um, I mean, they're pretty much the best of the bunch because they ramp up the action. There's a lot of gun battles. There's a lot of callbacks to, to the very first episode. Uh, you know, I guess I'm going to general thoughts here. Some deaths just didn't matter to me. And I thought some sequences really paled in comparison to to how big um, this story or this show could be in previous seasons. Uh, I just felt like I was watching some things going, wow, if this was season four or season five, it would be bigger. It would feel grander. It would look better. Um, and then if I also try to like compare this to other very popular shows like Stranger Things or Game of Thrones. I mean, the way those things ended, whether you liked it or not, there was a scope to it. And there were moments that just, you know, I just felt like my breath was being held. And I don't know if I really got that with Walking Dead. I'll talk more about that later. We did have a good moment with Daryl where he, you know, he basically moved away from Rick and, and the way Rick was thinking. And he has this line where he says, we're not the walking dead. Some of it felt like it was way too late. Um, we learned some things about the zombies in these last few episodes that uh, they have some new tricks. And it kind of calls back to some of the earliest episodes where they can climb, they can grab things, they can use tools, things like that. And then we get the ending and we see all of these communities thrive and people going off on their different ways. And, and that's where we're left off at the end of, of this season, at the end of this series. Um, I'm not sure the last couple episodes or, you know, like all of these episodes that I saw or even the last season, I'm not sure if it really lived up to what we have been experiencing for 12 years of this TV show. I think we got much better endings in other seasons. We had characters that we really cared about. Um, I found that although 
there were there were moments of tension and worry and of course i want these characters to win i just was not emotionally involved in their survival or in the conflict or how things ended and the commonwealth just felt like we've seen this before the villains weren't really villainous and maybe that was part of the themes i don't know some of the chaos felt really rehearsed it felt like i i saw the tv making behind what was going on right like so for instance everybody's up in arms because of the revelation of the sun and they they have this curfew and the stormtroopers are out in the center of the square make telling people to go home and it's kind of like the show's trying to say something about class and status and oppression it just fell flat it fell really flat and then there was another uh part in episode 18 where some walkers find their way into the community and they're causing chaos again in the middle of this community in the center it's broad daylight everybody just starts running but they're not going anywhere it's like they're just constantly running in a circle i mean if there were that many people in the center of the square and the walkers are only coming from one direction don't you think everybody would just run in the opposite direction and if this is the center of a square don't they have streets that they can go run down and i don't know it just was frustrating to watch because it felt very fake it felt it felt very tv chaos and i know we have gotten other things like this in the show that were just better it just it just was better for all the money that this show makes you know that that should never be a criticism of the show um Emotionally, if I had to think about some of the characters who did die, uh, you know, Rosita, sure. You know, like, I feel like, okay, I understand it, but why her? Why make another orphan on this show? Is Gabriel really that much more interesting than she is? Are they trying to say that her character, she only has value as a fighter and someone who's in the conflict, not as a mother, not as a survivor? I don't know. That was weird. And then they also killed off Luke, who was one of the new people in season 10. And we ha- But we haven't seen him in a while. And then he shows up like two episodes ago. Of course he's going to die. And they had this like big moment around him, all those people like Yumiko and Magda and Connie and they're crying. And I was just like, Ugh, I don't care. Like, why him? Why him? It should have been one of the other ones that we've been seeing for a while. And that felt, again, really flat. I, I just didn't care. It really comes down to we know that this world isn't over. There are spinoffs coming. It's a franchise. It makes money. Um, but it's it's a heavy story. So to not get a resolution, because we know it's going to continue, it I think that's why everything, for me, for this final season, for these last couple episodes, I just was like, okay, uh, you know, there it is. That's the end of this show. But there are how many other shows are we getting? At least two, if not three. And... I feel like I want to go back to when they used to really dig deep into conversations, very much like Stephen King's The Stand that this series is obviously inspired by. Conversations about, you know, um, community and civilization and getting back to what mattered 
and you know we characters like dale and herschel things that they used to talk about like we don't have those characters anymore and for this kind of ending to really work you have to have an uncertainty about the future of these characters but we know daryl's not going to die we know uh um Negan is not going to die. We know Maggie's not going to die. We have these spinoffs. There's no sense of danger. So, you know, unless we get this Daryl show and then like in season two, he does die there again, there's the continuity of the story. It's just going to keep going. What new things can they tell that they haven't already told in this series in Fear the Walking Dead, Tales of the Walking Dead, whatever that spinoff is, there was another one, you know, like the the world divided or whatever. I don't even know. I didn't watch it. And then at the end of at the end of the last episode, we get uh, new scenes with Rick and Michonne, um, or scenes that might show up in their spinoff in their movie or whatever they're getting. You know, like I I I get it. That's what I I've missed Rick. I've I've missed his presence in the show. And um, they're going to obviously be a big draw to see what their storyline is. But again, it has to be interesting. And no doubt if you're going to bring Rick back and Michonne back and you have a series focused on Maggie and and Negan and you have a series focused on Daryl, they're going to want to bring all these OG characters back together again, right? Like I think it's eventually going to have to happen. Um. They did bring Rick and Michonne back at the end, but but what was nice is they weren't the last things you saw. They did go back to Judith and RJ, their children, and that was the last thing you saw, which was good because, you know, it's it's the Walking Dead show um, and Rick and Michonne haven't been on. So to, to end it on them and them alone would have felt, I would have felt a little cheated. So I'm glad that they did go back to the characters that we've been seeing. There are things to like. All of these uh, last eight episodes had openers that were narrated by Judith, and we got to see little spotlights on different characters, conflicts, the heroes, the villains, the weapons of Walking Dead. It was that actually was really creative and cool. Um, there's a moment where Judith gets shot. That's a pretty good scene because everybody rallies around that moment. And, and they start attacking the Commonwealth and the governor. And it was, it was a very high-tension moment. I really did. I, I like that a lot. And then the acting in the last episode, you can tell these actors, these certainly the characters, but the actors, they know that this is it. And you can see it on their faces. There's a naturalness. There's a, a resolution. They are saying goodbye to the characters, to the world, to each other as actors. You know, some of them... Well, Daryl and Carol have been on for since season one, and Maggie has been around since season two, and then I forget when Eugene and, and Rosita, when they joined, it was somewhere, I don't know, three or four. I mean, these are this is years of their lives, so um, I kind of dug that. Um, I was going to go episode by episode and give some thoughts, but honestly, I can't, because some of the inner episodes, they just, I don't know. I feel like you could watch... 17 and 18 and then go watch 23 and 24 and you could get the a nice wrap up of the ending for walking dead so now that this is done i can 
put my energies towards other things, you know, like getting back to Star Trek, getting back to Star Wars, uh, getting back to Marvel. Uh, I'm trying to watch Marvel in order, and I'm at Agent Carter Season 2. I've been watching DC cartoons from the beginning, and then I decided to throw in some live action, and I got to the Batman TV show, watched one episode, and then I've stopped. So I need to get back to that. Uh, And maybe, just maybe, I could get back to The Daily Smallville. How cool would that be? So there you go. Goodbye, Walking Dead. I don't know if I'm going to go back. I might go back and watch Fear the Walking Dead. I started to watch it when it was new, um, but then I quickly dropped off because... They basically got to the same story, too. I thought it was going to be more about the buildup, and then eventually they just got to the outbreak and and onward from there, and I was like, oh, come on. So maybe I'll go back and watch that and watch some of the other spinoffs that have already happened. I doubt I'll do another segment, though, because, um, yeah, I think uh, I think for me, I'm I'm all Walking Dead talked out, you know? Uh, I think that was enough. 12 years, 12 years of of watching that show. Uh, you know, it, it was about time for it to end. So there you go. My thoughts on the final season of The Walking Dead. Wednesday Night Fever, some comic book reviews and some recommendations for the week of April 5th. I have three comic book reviews of uh, sort of recent comics. Uh, We have Superman Lost, number one, which shipped in the middle of March. We are also going to talk about the first issue of the new Doctor Strange title, also released in March. And then the first issue of Dead Seas from IDW, which was a six-issue miniseries, and the first issue was released in December, and I think it's up to issue four as of this recording. Once I'm done with those reviews, I will give you my recommendations for the week of April 5th. So we start with Superman Lost number one, which I read on the DC app on the Ultra Tier. This is by Christopher Priest, doing plot and script. Uh, Carlo Pagulayan, also doing plot and art. Jason Paz on inks. Jeremy Cox on colors. Willie Schubert, letters, with a special thanks to Dave Van Dommelen, PhD, which I have to imagine might be some of the more scientific stuff that's going on in this issue. So this is the first issue of a 10-issue maxi-series. It is somewhat part of Superman's 85th anniversary celebration. And the tagline, Can love conquer all? After Superman is called away on a routine Justice League mission, Lois Lane awakens to find a complete stranger standing in her living room. The Man of Steel, home much sooner than expected, reveals he has in fact been lost in space for 20 years. Nothing and no one seem familiar to him anymore, and the timeless bond between them has been severed, or has it? What you got in this first issue is more or less everything, or more or less what you got from that blurb, um, minus the part about uh, 
um, their bond, right? Like, I mean, there's some early stages of that, but it doesn't get too deep into that just yet. So because it doesn't go much further than the premise, I did find this first issue a little disappointing in what I was getting out of the story. Now, if you picked up this copy cold and you had no idea what it was about, sure, fine. Maybe you were engrossed in the story. And there are certain parts of it that you're like, oh, okay, I see how it's going to happen. But ultimately, by the time I got to the end, I was like, ooh, I wish I got a little bit deeper into whatever it is um, is going to happen because this all feels very much like just set up and I got all this information from the ad copy. Um, so it all starts off with uh, a mystery involving the resignation of a senator because of a car accident. Uh, then there is a Justice League mission and it's not quite what they're telling the press um, that this mission is. Superman disappears, but he's but he comes back right away, as the blurb says. He's gone for 20 years. Um, it's a Superman story, but this issue also is sort of like a Justice League story as well. And we're getting scenes of Superman uh, return to his home against what exactly happened on this Justice League mission. And then it ends with Superman in space, plus this device that, this device that uh, sent him out there. And then that's where it ends. I'm not even really sure I would have known this was a Christopher Priest written story outside of the chapter title breaks that he likes to do. Um, maybe because it is a Christopher Priest story, maybe the next couple issues will build what is in this first issue. But again, I think I would have liked uh, something a little bit deeper um, by the end. Not to say that it's not rich with dialogue and I think there are um, some really interesting characterizations with the Justice League and the way that they use their powers and maybe that's what the special thanks is for you know some of it is science I have to real science maybe some of it is pseudoscience but I liked some of that um, like on the rescue mission Flash was throwing off static to mess up the technology of the military Hal Jordan was putting his pilot experience to use when trying to stop fighter jets in the sky. Wonder Woman was using her the wash of her jet to interfere interfere with the other jets, you know. And then you have like Green Arrow being his usual, hey, I'm a human, why am I here? Um, all of that felt very, just felt uh, like a worthy examination of their powers. And instead of just being sort of like super heroics and yay, we're going to save the day, they're talking about it, they're explaining it for their readers. And I did enjoy that. As Superman gets caught up in the situation that will eventually make him disappear, we're getting all these little uh, word bubbles with his dialogue. And I have to imagine some of that stuff will probably be echoed later on in the run. Um, I don't know. It, it's it was an okay first issue. I think I rather would have I, I think I wanted to read more than one issue. I probably should have waited, but they only have one issue uh, at this time of recording on the app. It is a maxi series, so they know they have ten issues. 
So sure, you know, you can kind of take a breath and, and not have to explain everything right away. And maybe that's how it should be read. Maybe instead of one issue, you read five issues and then you read the other five issues. Um, the artwork is totally fine. Uh, Carlos uh, Pagalayan, or Carlo Pagalayan uh, did Red She-Hulk for Marvel Now, which I read. Also did the Christopher Priest um, Deathstroke series for DC Rebirth. And it feels to me very much like Mike Perkins. Some of the faces look like Kevin Nolan is on the inks. Not quite, but sort of. Um, so you put that together with a perfectly fine script and a perfectly fine story. And I just wrote here, it's fine. It's, it's a fine comic. Then we go to Marvel, the first issue of the new Doctor Strange series by Jed McKay, Pasquale Ferry on art. Matt Hollingsworth is the color artist. VC's Corey Pettit is on letters. It is a new number one issue, but they do have the legacy numbering of 427 on the cover. This takes place after Death of Doctor Strange and the Strange short-lived series that featured Clea in the main role of, of Sorcerer Supreme. Both of those, I believe, also written by Jed McKay. And the ad copy for this, Stephen Strange is back, reunited with Clea and Wong. It's back to business as usual for the Sorcerer Supreme. Have your children fallen into a deep nightmarish slumber? Are demonic refugees invading your home? Is your husband possessed by a satanic entity? Then call Dr. Strange. That's very much what you get in this first issue. Maybe not the specifics, but the idea is that this is um, Dr. Strange back to his Sanctum Sanctorum, back to Clea, and pretty much back to his life. And we get a week in the life of Dr. Strange as he puts himself out there very much in doctor mode. And um, since he feels like he is the preeminent scholar when it comes to magic, he wants to make himself available to other heroes if they have magical problems. Sometimes he makes house calls, sometimes he makes teleconference calls, and it's just a day in a life. So you see him you know, a, a small little encounter helping out Spider-Man, helping out Luke Cage, who is now the mayor of New York, helping out Black Cat, Doctor Doom, Daredevil, She-Hulk, etc. Um, in many ways, this puts Doctor Strange back into the larger Marvel Universe. And like I said, it kind of matches the ad, ad copy, uh, but I know that the whole thing about children falling falling asleep into a deep nightmare slumber, that's going to be the main drive starting with issue two. So we didn't get any of that really with this issue. I did enjoy this issue though. Um, even though, even though it, it, it has a premise that very much started, um, the Moon Knight series that Jed McKay wrote, and he also would make himself available and I think I reviewed that, you know, way back in, I don't know, it was like um, the summer of last year. Uh, this one, I, like I said, I did enjoy it mostly because of the Pasquale Ferry artwork that I'm always a fan of. And I, I just think between the art and the coloring, they do a really good job of atmosphere and setting the location, uh, some perspective stuff that's great. You will get darker colors in the foreground, lighter colors in the background. 
Um, this was, uh, out of the three, I think this was the one I actually enjoyed the most, surprisingly. Um, there are some nods to previous, those, those previous strange titles, but I didn't feel confused by anything. I thought this was a, a good jumping on point. The only thing I had no idea about is I have no idea who this ghost dog is. So, you know, they don't go into any explanation about who that is. I wrote here that there are some similarities in how this book is constructed to when Mark Wade took over Daredevil and he wanted to make it lighter and make it more of a superhero book again and pull it away from anything that was too street level or too dark. Um, they even joke about the similarities to what Doctor Strange wants to do, to what Moon Knight wants to do. I enjoyed Clea's personality here and the differences between how Doctor Strange uh, operates and how Clea operates since he's from Earth, she's from the Dark Dimension. She's now known as the Warlord of Manhattan. And there's a little conflict that goes on, uh, but it's nothing major just yet. Other things to like, the Alex Ross cover, the first page, which is broken up into nine panels, and we see these snippets of other characters. I don't know who they are. I'm assuming one of them is like Doctor Strange when he's older, it made me think that, oh, this is, is this what Jason Aaron did with Thor for Marvel Now when he had three different timelines, three different uh, ages of Thor, and that story kind of merged them all together? Um, is that what's going on here? Are we seeing snippets of Doctor Strange's life or some alternate Doctor Strange? I don't know. I don't know anything about that just yet. And then there's a backup story also by McKay, Andy McDonald, and Ian Herring. And this features Wong. And Wong is part of a two-person division of S.H.I.E.L.D. entitled WAND, Wizardry, Alchemy, Necromancy Department. I almost was going to be like, really? They're calling it WAND? But they also, in story, poke fun of it as well, which is good. Um, the backup story connects to the main story, and that made the whole issue felt really complete. Like, if you're going to do two stories, you know, and the backup is not wholly separate, that's kind of cool. And, uh, yeah, I did. I, I enjoyed this issue quite a lot. Um, I probably will try to keep reading and just to see. Doctor Strange isn't, you know, he's not like one of my favorite characters. He definitely is my uncle's favorite character, uh, but not mine. The story, the art, if it stays consistent, feels like it could be a worthwhile read. And then we go to IDW Dead Seas 1 of 6 by Kevin Scott, Nick Brokenshire on art and colors, Sean Lee on letters. Both Scott and Brokenshire work together on Star Wars Adventures Return to Vader's Castle. And this story is part Poseidon Adventure, part The Haunting of Hill House, I would also say part Ghostbusters and just a tiny bit that feels familiar from the HBO Chernobyl miniseries, if you've seen that. So in this story, ghosts are totally real, very dangerous, and very valuable. Their ectoplasm is capable of curing countless diseases. There's only one problem. Harvesting the wonder drug can be just as deadly. Prisoner Gus Ortiz is willing to take the risk in return for a reduced sentence, anything to see his daughter again. All it will take is a few months at sea-scraping ectoplasm off the walls of the Perdition, a floating prison containing the most vicious ghosts on Earth. 
Surrounded by dark waters, Gus soon realizes that angry spirits are the least of his worries. At the time I'm reading this, as I mentioned, there's only four issues out, but I only read the first issue. And um, I enjoyed it. There's a mix of seriousness, but there's also some humor. I could very easily see how this could be translated to a movie or a series. When they talk about this prison ship is surrounded by dark waters, some of the coloring feels too consistent from sequence to sequence. It's kind of it's kind of bright, it's comic booky. Um maybe it would have been nice to see a little bit more mood. You see some of the mood when they're being attacked by the ghosts and things like that. But I enjoyed it. It's only six issues. You got enough in this first issue. You got some characters. Many of them are kind of one-note stock characters. Like there's a chief of the prisoners uh, or chief of the guards. And he's a jerk, of course. And there's a couple of bad guys who are also jerks. And then the company behind all of this, um, they, one of the, the guy who owns it, her daughter shows, his daughter shows up on this boat and of course she's very pretty, but she's like, you know, she's in a situation where she shouldn't be. Um, maybe some of these characters will grow as we go through some of the issues, but they were, they were fine. Some of the dialogue was fine, uh, but I like the premise. I really did like the premise. I like the dangers, the tension of the ship, uh, the idea that this world has ghosts. They all, and, and this is only something that has happened within the last 10 years and then there are companies that engage in what they call preternatural management. How's that for corporate speak, right? So they want to get this ectoplasm for their own gain. And of course, that's at the cost of these prisoners because they're the ones that have to be the front line against these ghosts. And it drives one of them mad and, and it attacks a scientist. So things are not going to end well. The scene that reminded me of Chernobyl is when we get to see two prisoners go into a room and they have to kind of like literally vacuum the ectoplasm, but they can only be in there for a short amount of time. That felt like that scene in Chernobyl where they were trying to clean off all the radioactive material up on a rooftop and you could only be there for like a couple minutes and it was just very scary and uh, very sad. So you got a little bit of that. Um, the artwork is pretty great you know it's it's um cartooning but yet still trying to play within some kind of realism the main reason i even picked up this book is because of the brokenshire art uh nick brokenshire has a cgs connection from way 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 back there was a contest done in what was it 2009 with freddie williams ii and he wanted to uh, give portfolio reviews or image reviews to four winners uh, in digital art. And Nick Brokenshire was one of those contestants and he got on the show and he got to talk to Freddie Williams about his submission and talk about digital art. So, you know, Nick's name is some, I follow him on Instagram, maybe Twitter. And every time I see his artwork, I'm like, yeah, I want to try to give it, um, try to support what he's doing. So I did. I appreciated the artwork. A lot of the character, some of the characters, I I don't know if he did this purposely, but for instance, the daughter had a feel like, oh, she looks like a Jennifer Lawrence type. And then one of the scientists looks like Nick Muhammad. And again, I don't know if that's exactly what he's doing, 
but I could sort of see it and then go, oh, who would play this character in a movie? Well, I got suggestions for at least these two characters. So I'll finish this eventually. Um, the, the next two issues will come out in the next couple months. I imagine there'll be a trade. Uh, if it sounds like a good story to you, you should check it out. Let's round out this Wednesday segment with your recommendations for this week. Check out from Image Comics, Junk Rabbit number 1 by Jimmy Robinson and Love Everlasting number 6 from Tom King and Elsa Chartier. Both of those for $3.99. Love Everlasting is starting a new story arc entitled Too Hip for Love. And Jimmy Robinson... Junk Rabbit is in uh, basically Swamp Thing meets RoboCop, and it's a new take on the dystopian tale of how climate disaster alters not only our world, but also the heroes that literally rise from it. Jamie Robinson, you might know from the Bomb Queen titles, and CGS used to get a number of Easter eggs mentioned in those books, and it was always fun picking those up. From Little Brown and Company... I, Mija, My Bilingual Summer in Mexico by Christine Suggs, which you can get in graphic novel form or hardcover form. It's the struggle of 16-year-old Christine as she goes to Mexico to spend a few weeks with their grandparents, but but they don't know the language. So, of course, Christine has to settle into life in Mexico until mom shows up and then all the worlds collide And Christine feels homesick for Texas, struggles against traditions, and eventually, through exploring the impacts of colonialism in both Mexico and themselves, Christine finds their place in their family as they start to feel comfortable with their mixed identity. From Marvel, we have Captain America, Sentinel of of Liberty, number 11, which is the prelude to Cold War, for $3.99, Colin Kelly, Jackson Lansing, Carmen Carnero, and company. All of the stuff that has been going on for the last year, both in this title and in the sister title, um, what is that? Captain America, Symbol of Truth, I think it is. Um, You know, everything colliding to this crossover event called Cold War, and now we get the prelude to that. Also, Planet of the Apes by David F. Walker, the first issue, um, kicking off a new era of the Planet of the Apes with artwork by Mr. Dave Wachter for $4.99. And then check out something called American Dreams Number 1 from a, a company called Band of Bards. I have no idea who this is, what publisher that is, the creative team. Um, I just noticed it because it has a homage cover to Superman Number 1. And I love me covers that are reflective of other covers. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's cool. I can add that to my very long list of uh, homages to Superman number one. There you go. Your recommendations for the week of April 5th. Just when you thought it was safe to hear a podcast promo. JL made do 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 brave and bold do 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 comic books do 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 JL made JL made do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 JL made 
The annual podcast crossover event celebrating the Justice League is back. And we're covering the 2007 Brave and the Bold series that started with Mark Wade and George freaking Perez and ended with J. Michael Straczynski. Throughout the month of May, participating podcasts will release special episodes on issues in the run. It all kicks off in the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast. Follow the event on social media using the hashtag JLMay2023. Coming this May. JLMay do 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 Brave and the Bold do 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 Comic books do 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 Mephisto. Hey! That it? Is that what you want? Things I do for this show. A thought for Thursday. Well, I said I agree with Mr. Zappa that the first line of defense and responsibility is the parents. But what I do not agree with is that the parents have to stand alone, and we are not entitled to call upon our government to help us in the fight well, against now, this kind of filth. What, what is, I mean, I, I what government, you wait a minute, John, what is government, government censor, yeah. what government censor is going to decide for you? It's not. Tom, I've heard you say repeatedly on this show that we are our government, that we're allowed to call on our government. Well, you have to things. have a man who is the senator or a well, woman. Well, the way it they work. have to decide this Tom. often can hear and this That's often right. cannot hear. Tom, it would work the way the uh, implementation of any law works. You pass a law, it has words in it, and then the uh, elected representatives of the people try their best to apply it. It's the way you do it with everything else. Will they apply it perfectly? No. But we're entitled to use the force of our civil government. Uh, to help protect our families. How could you oppose that? Is, does like the government have any purpose, Frank? Yeah, it has what? a number of purposes. What is it? Name I'm more. not going to give you a civics lesson here, but yeah. I'll tell you one thing. We must not see eye to eye on the idea of a government that must forbid things in order to really? protect families. Really? What is families. the government's role? You've told me several times how what about it should do. How about national defense? Yeah, I consider this things. national defense, pal. Our families are under attack from people like you with these lyrics. John, you don't have to buy them. Could I make a statement sure. about national defense? Yeah. The biggest threat to America today is not communism. It's moving America toward a fascist theocracy. And everything that's happened during the Reagan administration is steering us right down that pipe. Oh, Mr. Mr. Zappa, do you, yes, do you, Mr. Zappa. Do you really think? I mean, I all, really kidding, think that. all kidding aside, in this country, with the permissiveness that we are moving toward a fascist theocracy, anything you goes. We are, but you know, do, you, do you think things like this would have ever been permitted? Smile again. When we when we were 20, 20, when we were kids, you're about my age, maybe I'm a little 45. younger. Well, I'm 55. Do you think when when I was a kid that they would permit songs like that to be sold? I mean, permissiveness is the game. I mean, well, exactly. I mean, you're not you're not really serious if if you're saying we're going toward a fascist theocracy. <laughs> That's right, we are. Wait a minute. In what way? Give me, give me uh, one example. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Well, one example. One example of a fascist theocracy. When you have a government that prefers a certain moral code mm -hmm. derived from a certain religion and that moral code turns into legislation to suit one certain religious point of view and if that code right. happens to be very very right-wing almost toward well, till the hun well then you are an anarchist every form of Civil government is based on some kind of morality, Frank. Morality in terms of behavior, not well, of in terms of theology. Well, of course, but look, I mean, I couldn't believe in your John, hearing. John, you're okay. Wait a minute, gentlemen. We we uh, we have to take a break okay. now, We're and back. we'll be back with John Lofton and Frank Zappa talking about rock music. I think after these messages. Oh yeah, feedback. 
Feedback Friday. Closing out this digest with some feedback that that I received uh, throughout the month of March, starting with an email from John Griggis on uh, the comic history trivia that I've been doing. And John writes, I never can answer your trivia questions, at least as far as I can remember. But when you asked for creators of Metal Men 60 years ago, I still didn't know. But you dropped that inks were by Mike Esposito, and I thought, Ross Andrew? And it was fun to hear that I guessed half the answer. I still haven't known any of these answers, but now I have half of one. I really do get a kick out of hearing how well people do or how not well they do, because I know that some of these questions are difficult, you know, because it's either based on what you've read or what you've uh, either in comics or what you've read in articles. And I get it. I totally get that sometimes these questions are um, difficult. And I also find that, you know, over the years of playing the trivia game with friends or on CGS, um, there is information that you should know, like it is up there and it's just a matter of, oh, you know, I've never been tested on it. So it doesn't come to the forefront. Right. Or it's things that you take for granted and you're like, oh, sure. I know that. And then when you have it placed in front of you, sometimes, um, the most, the, the easiest answers or, or you realize, oh yeah, it is up there. I just, I didn't remember it at the time. Um, Chris Beckett, he also lets me know uh, how he does on trivia here on Twitter. He says he got two out of the three in trivia. Um, This might be for February trivia or maybe early March trivia. I don't remember. Um, He got the Tycho toy line answer and the elongated man question. And then he also comments that John Sable is a great comic. I love many of those first books, Nexus, Grimjack, American Flag, Sable, and Chris has a long box dedicated to them. They're all such singular visions from the creators, ones I really enjoy. Sadly, when those creators left, the books seemed to falter, in my opinion. And then he also writes, Joe Kubert, I didn't appreciate him until Facts from Sarajevo. Then I fell in love with his art. I can't say I appreciate how Kubert drew superheroes in spandex, but I don't know if there's ever been any comic artist who draws clothing on bodies as well. That's what I saw in Facts and what I came to appreciate in his Sergeant Rock stories, one of my favorites on a long list. Yeah, I'm I'm completely um, uh, new to all of those first titles. I've never read Nexus. I've never read... American Flag, even though I had the collections for a while, but then sold them. Uh, Grimjack, John Sable. Um, A lot of that 80s independent stuff. Uh, While there is a handful of stuff I did read, there's a lot that I have not read. Uh, And Joe Kubert, I I used to collect Sergeant Rock in the 80s, like somewhere around like 1983 and a little bit after. Um, And then I also remember... Joe Kubert did an issue of DC Comics Presents with Superman and was it the Demon? I think it was the Demon. And they went up against Blackbriar Thorn. And I just remember that issue, looking at that issue and going, wow, this is not the kind of artwork I'm used to on superhero comics. And I really appreciated it. And um, 
Blackbriar Thorn is one of those characters that I was like, oh, I really like this character. And then he never shows up again until like JSA and some other stories and maybe some some event that has magic characters. You know, he wasn't used a lot, but I was like, oh, I like that character. And a lot of it was because of Joe Kubert. On Twitter again, Ed Moore uh, responds to Marvel Saga 19 and the Thor supporting character of Harris Hobbs that I was unfamiliar with. And Ed says, Hobbs shows up a bit later and is associated with Red Norval, a Ragnarok storyline, and the Celestial Saga. And then I looked it up. Yep, Harris Hobbs made some more appearances in Thor 272 through Thor 278. He also had an appearance in Marvel's number two by Busick and Ross, of course. And that Ragnarok story uh, that Ed is talking about was Roy Thomas and John Buscema. And, uh, you know, just one of those many, many characters that along the way just kind of disappears. Here's another comment by Chris Beckett on Twitter about um, the trivia question about Max, Sam Keith's Max, and... Was it a trivia question? I don't know if it was a trivia question or maybe it was just a history point. Uh, and he said, Sam Keith's Max made his first appearance as Max the Hare in the Kamiko Primer. And I did, I, I, I think I knew that and then, but I didn't mention it in the timeline. And again, these are characters that um, I don't really know well. So thank you for that correction. And then we end this Feedback uh, Friday with a, uh, an email from Matt Williams, who wrote in on a bunch of different topics. Uh, the first one, energetic artists, energetic artists. You've spoken several times across the Daily Rios, DC All-Stars, and CGS about artists such as Dan Mora and Jorge Jimenez, who bring exciting energy to their layouts and designs. Have you seen the work of Adrian Gutierrez? Gutierrez, the artist on the new Blue Beetle Graduation Day miniseries. His work reminds me of Jorge Jimenez's art. He has a good sense of when to zoom out to give us a sense of scale while also depicting action that flows well and is easy to follow. I am not familiar with that artist, but um, I did flip through the Blue Beetle miniseries and I haven't read it yet. Um, you know, it, along with all the other projects I have, I've been wanting to do like a Blue Beetle deep dive, um, but I haven't gotten there yet. Um, let's see. Matt Williams talks about Star Trek in comics. I am almost surprised to find that I have gone all in on IDW's new Star Trek comics, the new Star Trek series, Star Trek Defiant, Strange New World's Illyrian Enigma miniseries, as well as subscribing to the upcoming Deep Space Nine Dog of War mini and the Star Trek The Motion Picture Echoes mini, even though they are set in Star Trek's past. I totally get that. I'm all in with those comics as well. Uh, he writes in about Injustice. I knew there had to be something special about Injustice because Bill Beechler, who's an old, that's a, a CGS name drop, uh, who loves Superman, kept praising the series despite the fact that it centers on a murderous, tyrannical man of steel. Then Tom Taylor started posting pages from Injustice 2, where I discovered that he writes every character in the DC Universe true to the way that I perceive and prefer them to be. Thus began a long daily reading project during which I read a chapter of Injustice 2 every morning, 
I did not know this would lead me to frequently tearing up over my breakfast while reading heartbreaking scenes featuring Beetle and Booster. I've been a Tom Taylor fan ever since. I have yet to go back to read the first Injustice, but I think you will enjoy two whenever you get to it. Yeah, I really do, you know, Injustice is a, a simple story, and I know that there are people who, at least where I'm at now, in the beginning of it, and I know there are people, you know, they, they're like, no, I don't want to read a story where Superman is bad. Part of it is probably because it's attached to video games. Part of it might be people don't read it because the characters don't look the same. They all have different costumes to match the video game. But underneath all that, they're really, I, I don't know, uh, I find the story engaging. I find the characters are not far off from what we know in the regular DC universe. And, you know, I've said this so many times over the years. Whenever you get a new creative team on a book, the character is always going to have some changes, right? And we as readers either accept those changes, sometimes you ignore them because you're reading the title consistently. But these characters, it's kind of like what I felt when... I read a bunch of like DC Rebirth stuff for the first time back when when that was coming out. And uh, as I was reading it, especially like the Superman stuff and some other titles, I was sitting there going, oh, these are the same characters. I mean, it's the same type of story you tell with these characters. Okay, so the costume's a little different. Maybe they have some new supporting characters, some new villains. Maybe the situations are a little different. But is that really all that different from getting you know think of x-men pre-grant morrison and x-men post-grant morrison like once he started on the book that was a completely different book it could have been a completely different universe you know so i i i don't know maybe i sometimes i get wrapped up in that sometimes i don't and with this injustice thing you know it's gone on for a, it's a popular game and it's a popular comic and and i'm i'm having fun reading it as well and then the last thing he talks about is uh, sales figures and the lack thereof. And, he, and Matt writes, A few weeks ago, The Beat and some other comics news outlets discussed, discussed the fact that we no longer receive sales figures for comics now that distribution is fragmented across several companies. The articles mention pros and cons of lacking this knowledge. One that recently came to mind involves creative team changes and cancellations cancellations. Like your co-hosts on DC All-Stars, I have been enjoying Jeremy Adams' run on The Flash, so I was a bit surprised and disappointed to learn that he was being removed from the book. I would still have been disappointed, but perhaps not surprised, if we were able to see how sales on The Flash were trending. Likewise, I was sad but not surprised to learn that Batgirls has been canceled. I had a feeling that the book enjoyed a niche audience at best, but I hoped its sales would keep it above the cancellation threshold. Knowing for a fact that the sales were low might have softened the blow. Do you think it would be better if we knew how well or poorly titles were selling? Or do you think it's better if this information remains hidden from public knowledge? So I think there's a number of factors here. Um, yes, you know, some of it could be sales. Some of it could be editorial direction, you know, with the whole, whole Dawn of DC thing. Maybe Batgirls doesn't fit into that Dawn of DC narrative. Uh, you know, maybe there's something else on the horizon. Um, I think I think sales 
uh, is something that is absolutely on the minds of DC when you think about like a lot of these Dawn of DC books because many of these titles are only six issues. Maybe they're waiting to see how they sell before they think about, you know, well, let's extend it to 12 or maybe beyond. And I'm mentioning Dawn of DC because both Flash, well, Flash is going to get a revamp or a reboot or restart, relaunch, whatever with Dawn of DC. Um, sales numbers, should they be public? Were they really public to begin with? You know, a lot of the sales numbers that we saw were educational estimations at best. You know, they don't put into account digital because publishers don't give that number. Uh, they don't really put into account overseas, uh, the book market, etc. That was one of the things, you know, we used to look at sales a lot over on CGS for many, 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 many years. And when we started to invite retailers on there who, you know, they are the ones that have to live and breathe and, and function and pay bills based on these numbers, we started to learn that um, while, while there is that list, that list didn't necessarily mean the same thing for every retailer. There were some retailers who, you know, when Buffy at Dark Horse was going on strong, that book would outsell X-Men or Batman. And then you had this retailer over here that Walking Dead outsold everything else. And then you had this retailer over here that they were really good about pushing second-tier books, independent books, and they would outsell some of Marvel and DC. So yes, the numbers mean something in that long list, but what do they mean per store? And really, like one of the notions that I, I started, started to think about or I heard from a lot of retailers, until retailers have a system, a point of sale system where they can accurately, uh, you know, figure out their numbers, Again, all these sales numbers are estimations, right? And and these sales numbers are orders from publishers to retailers, but the real numbers that we should want are the sale through numbers to customers. I mean, that's really what we should have. And if there's no 100% across the board point of sales technology or retailers can't afford it or whatever, or they don't want it, um, there's no way to really gauge that. So... On one level, those sales charts might have been good for promotion. You know, company can brag that they 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 picked num they got number one, they got the higher market share. But what does it really mean if a lot of those co comics, especially, you know, like I told this before, my local comic shop in South Philly, when I lived there, closed down. Um, I forget what year that was. Uh, somewhere before, hmm. Somewhere before like 2017, maybe 2016, somewhere around there, maybe before that, they closed down and they said there were there were a number of factors. Um, one of them was people having pool lists but not picking up their comics. Another factor that they openly said to me was, you know, sometimes they weren't the, the best business minded, you know, they um, whatever that meant, you know. Um, but the one of the other factors was having to order Marvel in quantities, um, you know, to balance out whatever it is that that relationship they had with Diamond or whatever, they said that was a real hurdle, you know, like you wanted to get enough for the shelf, 
you wanted to get f- enough for buyer demand, but then it turned out that they had way too many titles, so then they couldn't order enough of one title because they thought maybe this one would come out, So, or this one would sell more than another one, and if it, if it was an event or whatever, and they had to play that guessing game, and they wound up stuck with a lot of product. And if you're so on the sales chart to that retailer, Marvel was, you know, selling really well, but to the from the retailer to the customer, it was not. And they wound up stuck with a lot of books. And maybe that's part of what they meant about being business minded. You know, that's when you need to get uh, I think they did have a, a, a point of sale system, actually, you know, like a scanner or something. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like uh, those numbers are dangerous because they do mean something, but they don't mean something. And I totally get your point, Matt, you know, and a lot of it is it's so hard to, uh, train readers to pre-order books because they think, oh, that book will always be there. You know, Flash will always be there. Wonder Woman will always be there. You know, uh, Captain America will always be there. Well, you know, we always say you should pre-order your indie books, but sometimes you should really put that, if you're really enjoying something and you're not, if you're buying physical and you're not pre-ordering, yeah, sometimes these, ti- these titles are going to go away, you know? So, uh, yeah, interesting conversation and a conversation that, <laughs> you know, we've been having for a long, long time, um, you know, in the comics podcasting universe. Uh, it would be interesting to go back and listen to, to some of those sales conversations Back in the day, you know, when Marvel and DC were sort of riding high in the mid-2000s, just to see, you know, what was being said by some of those retailers versus what's being said now. So, all right, there you go. That is your Feedback Friday for this week. Thank you to everyone who wrote in or liked uh, a tweet or retweeted or commented on the website or wherever. If I missed anyone, I apologize. You can send me feedback, peter at thedailyrios.com. Go to the website, The Daily Rios, and leave a comment. Go to Instagram, you can leave a comment there, The Daily Rios Instagram. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 611 for Saturday, April 8th, 2023. Talk to you soon. We're the ones who live.